interesting to think about that season of life for Mary and Joseph and Jesus. Uh, you know, King Herod, when he heard that a king had been born, issued an edict to kill all the firstborn males in the land. And Matthew tells us that uh, as that threat reached Mary, Joseph, and Jesus, they fled to Egypt because of a threat. Mary, Joseph, and Jesus fled and threw themselves on the mercy of a foreign power, Egypt. Mary, Joseph, and Jesus are refugees. That's a pretty sensitive word, right? One that you should be careful with. I know as soon as it comes out of my mouth or I read something about it, I have images that jump into my, my mind. I have names that come to mind and I, I just can't get them out of my head. Little kids standing before vicious, vile men who just want to steal, kill, and destroy. Kids banding together, trying to, they're on the run, searching for food. Malnutrition is the norm. No education, no protection, nowhere to look. And it's not just an image. It sounds deafening silence or the wails or constant crying. It's not just an image and it's not just sound. It's smells that make you relapse, that take you back into that place of fear. Terrified children and the horror that they experience as refugees is hard to think about. And refugee women heard some stories, I'm sure some of you have as well. You hear those stories of monstrous men who are coming to take things without consent, and I feel like I'm watching a movie just saying, run, hide, go. Refugee young men. Some of the people who work on staff here get to talk to them, they're hopeless, don't know where to turn, no answers. Don't know how to make a life for themselves and often death feels like a better option than the life that they have. So much pressure to provide, no opportunity to provide it. And so in desperation, they throw themselves on the mercy of neighbors and neighboring countries just at the hope that they could have a chance at a better life. You know, in general, as I look around in 2018, I look to the east, and that description of refugee seems to fit pretty well. I look to the west, and that definition of refugee seems to fit pretty well. And I look to the south, and that definition of refugee seems to fit pretty well. When I look back in history, it's like the distant and the recent past seem to describe that same thing. And when I look ahead, it seems to be the prescription for what's coming. And when I look in, I have relatives and family members, and in a sense, this describes even some of my own personal story. And I'm sure as I look here, this has got to be touching some of you. It's a tough topic. The description of the helpless on the run in the midst of conflict is actually all around us. It doesn't need to be warring countries or a country in disarray. It can be a marriage that's falling apart. 
could be a war between races. It could be inner city conflict. It could be a health crisis. But the cause leads to the effect of children who are terrified, women who are discarded, men who are hopeless. That's what a refugee is. Somebody seeking refuge from that kind of conflict. And these are the threats that are very real and present for Mary, Jesus, and Joseph. They personify the descriptions. And these descriptions are actually, they're paraphrases from people I know. I have friends who have taken a number of trips down to Honduras. I have another friend who works in Myanmar and Thailand and works with the forgotten there. I have other friends who work in the city here and in Chicago. And in some way or another, as I sit there and describe that, I know every one of them can say, well, that sounds about right. And every one of them also comes back to me and says, you know, Adam... I think the scariest part of this whole thing is that these are people just like you and me, man. They got families they love. They got a home they may have had to abandon. They have jobs. They have an education. They're no different than us, man. Why? Why is this happening? Where is God? Is he he not able to do something here? Does he even care? What are we supposed to do? Open your Bible to Isaiah 14. It's page 565 if you've got one of the church Bibles here. Now listen to me as you're opening your Bible. It does not take a believer to recognize that this is a problem. Believers and non-believers alike are burdened for this. We all seem to instinctually know this is not the way it's supposed to be. So it's natural in those situations to try to figure out what's the problem. Who's the issue or what's the issue, right? Let's fix it. Let's cauterize the wound, stop the bleeding, and move on, right? Look at 1428. That's the beginning of our text today. Prophecy of Isaiah starts by telling us that King Ahaz is dead. You guys, Ahaz was a terrible king. I don't know how much you read your Bible, but you don't have to read a ton to know how awful this man was, okay? He was a terrible leader, terrible king. And he was actually warned by Isaiah on a number of occasions, don't trust in other gods. Put your trust in the Lord. And you know what he did? Refused to listen. Made alliances with foreign allies, foreign strengths, the people who looked strong and mighty because of their armies. And as he did that, he allowed in their gods. And so Israel went from being a holy people, a people set apart because of their God and because of their worship to being no different than anybody else. God's house, the temple, became a house of pagan worship. And perhaps at the low point of Ahaz's story, he takes his son and offers him in the fire of one of those gods. Ahaz is a terrible king. 
But thank God he's dead, right? He's gone, right? New king, new leader, new gods, new alliances. Let's move on. Just need a different king. Great. New hope, right? I'm going to pick it up in 28 there, okay? This prophecy came in the year King Ahaz died. Do not rejoice, you Philistines, all you Philistines, that the rod that struck you is broken. And from that root, from the root of that snake will spring up a viper. Its fruit will be a darting venomous serpent. Skip down to the middle of verse 30 there. Your root I will destroy by famine. It will slay your survivors. Wail, you gate. Howl, you city. Melt away, all you Philistines. A cloud of smoke comes from the north, and there is not a straggler in its ranks. What answer shall be given to the envoys of that nation? This passage starts with this resurgence of hope because of a changeover in leadership, right? I mean, that's got to feel somewhat common to us, right? There's this fresh potential anointing that's going to come from a change in leadership. But actually what's happening is that things are only going to get worse. You see, you thought Ahaz was bad. Wait until you meet Sargon of Assyria. That's who I think Isaiah is referring to in this passage and his armies from the north are like a cloud of smoke and to answer Isaiah's rhetorical question, nothing is going to stand against him. And as these armies start to sweep down through Israel, Damascus, Philistia, and Moab are all just gonna be crushed. They're gonna be wiped off the mat. That's what it's saying in 31. Look back up there real quick. Philistia will be in ruin. It will melt away. Jump ahead to 15.1. It's the same for Moab. It's in ruin. Look over at 17.1. It's the same for Damascus. It's in ruin. Throughout these chapters, what Isaiah does is he describes to us the horrible conflict and war and its product, its produce, is that it's sending people fleeing and its horrible impacts are on the poorest of the poor. The description's like a series of snapshots, broken walls, piled bodies, wailing, The destruction is so absolute, it goes all the way down to the earth itself, and these refugees are fleeing in every direction. It's terrified. What on earth is causing this? What on earth is the problem? Why, God, are you allowing this to happen to Philistia, Moab, and Damascus? The text tells us. Look at 16.6. We have heard of Moab's pride. How great is her arrogance. Of her conceit, her pride, and her insolence. But her boasts are empty. Pride, arrogance, conceit, and insolence are the story of not just Moab, of all these countries. Have you ever had to journey with somebody close to you? down a road you didn't want to go because of poor choices? You ever had to go down with somebody who just wouldn't give up drinking? 
You ever have to go down with somebody who you know that God is trying to tell them, turn around, this is not a good road. Maybe even you got to deliver that message. What is it like watching somebody you love go to a place you know that they shouldn't? It's crushing. It's horrible. It's difficult. I gotta, you guys, this is really hard to hear. But sometimes when judgment comes in our life or in the life of somebody else, we may or we should not necessarily deliver them from it. That is a tough, tough thing to hear. But wait, I mean, shouldn't we, shouldn't we just save everybody? Anybody who's crying out for help, right? Well, it depends. What are they crying out for help for? Who are they crying out for help to? Look at 15.2. 15.2. Dibon goes up to its temple, to its high places. They're going there to cry for help. The verse goes on to say they're going to shave their heads and their beards. That's a form of worship. Dibon is a group of people and they're going to the temple of a god named Chemosh to cry out for help. Moab is turning to false gods. So is Philistia. So is Damascus. Their pride and their arrogance, their conceit and insolence is against Yahweh. This is not passive innocence or arrogance or innocence or, in, uh, or uh, ignorance. It's active rebellion. And the crazy part about this is that Isaiah has offered him sanctuary. He makes them an offer, but they refuse. And as a consequence, those leaders who chose to refuse are victimizing their families. What is Yahweh supposed to do? Just, I mean, just let it go, God. What's the big deal? Just let them have what they want, right? I mean, just let it go. Allow the rebellion, right? Well, first of all, can I just tell you? He has. His house is in complete disarray. He has let this go down, and because of it, they have no answers, nowhere to look. The place is in shambles because of his patience. It's not because of him, but it's because he's been so patient with people, these people. But you know, at some point, get your water ready, here comes another pill. At some point, it's good and right for God to allow judgment to come on those who rebel against him. And just because someone is on the run and in a terrible situation doesn't mean they're not exactly where God wants them to be. God is sovereign. Do you think he's not powerful enough to save? Do you, do you know him? He's fully capable. So we need to be prayerful, 
You guys, we need to be very careful. We don't want our benevolence to get in the way of what God may be trying to produce in executing right judgment. When the pride and arrogance of people is so great that their trust is in anything and everything other than the Lord, God sees fit from time to time to end his patience and let them have what they're worshiping. He's giving them what they're asking for. He's giving them what they're asking for. He's allowing people to see the produce of their work, their worship. If that's what you want, I'll give it to you. Now listen, this is gonna sound nuts. That is incredibly kind yes, it is. of God to do. Why? Why is that kind? For Philistia to see the kind of God that Dagon is. They think Dagon is the Lord of the sea and agriculture. He's not. Yahweh is. It is incredibly kind of God for him to allow Moab to see the kind of God that Chemosh the destroyer is. He can't protect them. Yahweh can. It's incredibly kind for God to show Damascus, Jupiter's not God. It's incredibly kind for us to see, for them to see the kind of God that Molech is, who Ahaz was worshiping. It is kind of God to show us the kinds of gods that we worship. It's kind of God to show those who worship in Islam the kind of God that they serve. It's kind. How else are they going to know what's true? It's kind of God to go through, I mean, you guys, insert in the blank here, New Age mysticism, Eastern religions, all of it. God, show us who we're worshiping. Why? Because when that righteous judgment comes, he's not only putting the hammer there, he's offering himself. He's offering himself. He is the righteous executor of judgment, but he is also, and shockingly, the one who offers escape from it. But the shocking truth is, it's incredible. It's all this kindness from God. I think it's kind of God to put refugees in our midst too. People who are fleeing and on the run remind us, oh man, I better get right. I know what this could lead to. It's good for God to do this. And so refugees on the, on the run, fleeing destruction can be a good thing because God is allowing us to see who they really are. And while it is good and right for destruction to come, I want to make, I hope, my clearest point right now of the entire sermon. God is not enjoying this. He is not up in heaven eating popcorn and throwing back peanuts going, watch this. He longs for everybody to be saved. And so should we. Careful with the way that you feel towards those who are on the run. We should long for their salvation. 
hard truth is, you guys, it often takes humiliation to produce humility. So if God is not enjoying this, how does he feel about it? What does he think about the refugee? Even the ones that deserve his righteous judgment, how does he feel about it? Look back at 1430. 1430. You see, even in the midst of this loose viper that's coming to execute judgment for God, the poorest of the poor will find pasture and the needy will lie down in safety. How will they lay down in safety? Look at the second part of verse 32. The Lord has established Zion and in her, his afflicted people will find refuge. This is the offer from Isaiah before they turn back to their own gods. Why would he provide safety and pasture and refuge to a prideful, arrogant people who deserve judgment? Why? Why would he do that? Look at 15.5. And sit on 15.5. My heart cries out for Moab. Our broken Crying spirit for the refugee was preceded by his. He holds everything in his hands and there is no refugee he doesn't know about that he can't save, that he can't come to. And if you think that there was a better way, don't you think he'd do it? Do you know he's kind and good? Or are you wrestling with that concept with this topic. He is. Or maybe you think he's powerless to stop it. God is life. And in him he gives light to every person. Death does not please God. Suffering and pain is not something that he enjoys. It's wrong every single time you or anybody else experiences it. This is not the way it's supposed to be. God said that and believed that and was broken over that before we were. At the end of Luke 19, Jesus is coming towards Jerusalem and he sees the city And the text says that he wept. He wept over, he's looking at it. Wept, not like dropping a tear. The guy is weeping. And through his tears, you can almost hear his crackling voice. If you, even you, had only known that this day would bring you peace. If you only knew it. But now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side and they will dash you to the ground and the innocent people you led here, your children within the walls. They will not leave one stone on another because, 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 
you did not recognize the time of God's coming. That's it. Do you recognize his coming? Do you realize that that is exactly what he's looking for, you guys? More than that, do you see that we serve the God who weeps? He's not happy about this stuff. He's got a broken, crying heart. Jesus is weeping in Luke over Jerusalem the way that Yahweh is weeping over Moab and Isaiah. He's weeping over the Syrian refugees. He is weeping over Lesbos, for those of you who have gone on mission there. He is weeping over Honduras and the caravan to the south. He's weeping over Myanmar and Thailand. If we only knew we serve a God who weeps. And that the Lord hears the cry of the poor and is close to the brokenhearted. He weeps at the thought of executing judgment and he weeps in the midst of it. Sometimes I wish we would. But more than weep, you know, in the heart of judgment, in the cries of the poor and the suffering, he gives an answer. He doesn't remain silent. He is so broken about what is currently going on in the refugee crisis, and by the way, the one that's coming that's even worse. He's so broken up about it that he gives us an answer. You want to help refugees? You want to get involved with the refugee crisis around the world, and you want to know how to address what the produce of prideful, arrogant, false God worshiping is. By the way, that's exactly why we have refugees. Leviticus 26 tells us, if you are unfaithful to me, I will scatter you. You want to help be a part of the solution? Offer the true God. That's the answer. Look at 16.5 here. I'll show you. I'm not just piping off here. This is not me. This is the text, guys, okay? 16.5. In love, a throne will be established. In faithfulness, a man will sit on it. Do you see that dash? Isaiah, I don't know who it is, but there's, there's, a, there's a throne. There's a man that's going to sit on it. One from the house of David. Don't know who that is. One who, in judging, seeks justice and spreads the cause of righteousness. You see, listen, from all the kings... From Ahaz to Sargon, from David to Solomon, and from all the gods, from Dagon to Molech, from Islam to self, no one has established a throne in love. Nobody. Thrones are not established in love. They are established in power and conquest. That's how you establish it. And it's not just countries. How'd you get to where you're at in life? What'd you do? Well, I conquered school. Then I went out there and I had the best resume and I, I just went on top of them. I went and go get them. That's what you got to do, son. I don't know many people, I want to know more, who say, you know what, I don't know. It's the grace of God, to be honest with you. I could have I botched this whole thing up. Probably should have. I just got, to be honest with you, I'm lucky. God 
put me in this place. Not many people talk like that. And why is that? From country to, to individuals, why is that? Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. Why does the kingdom suffer? It suffers because this is not the way of the kingdom. It's the way of the world. Time and time again, people and individuals prove they have not known a throne of love. They haven't known it. False concepts of love through philanthropy and charity, through tolerance and alliance. This is Ahaz, okay? They only seem to turn into more injustice and more unrighteousness, harming the people we're intending to save. I'm not demonizing those things, okay? Please hear me. I'm trying to say that there is a precedent to those things. There is a reason we do those things. And if we don't know the reason, then those things fall short. We can't, we cannot just have a man on the throne. Nobody knows how to wield a throne without selfishness. Nobody. And we can't just have a God that doesn't know the plight of the poor. He's so distant. How could he possibly identify with the refugee, all the danger that we've been in? You guys, we need a God-man who knows full well the case of the refugee because he came one. He became one. He came down from heaven. I don't know if that excites you or not. An amen would help me right now. <laughs> we serve a God who became a refugee, you guys. That's crazy. That is crazy. And in becoming one, he established that throne of love, not by dying for his friends, but by dying for his enemies. People that turn their back on him. People like the Philistines and the Moabites. People like, people like you and me. What kind of love must it have taken to have all the just reason in the world to execute judgment and then gloat over the victory and instead be completely heartbroken by it and to make an offer that the humiliation in righteous judgment that we deserve he'd he take he took it Someone that would take on humiliation for the cause of our own false worship instead of allowing us to be humiliated he gives us an offer to be restored. Look at 17.7. See, in that day, that's the day of righteous judgment. People will look to their maker turn their eyes to the Holy One of Israel. They will not look to their altars or the work of their hands and they will have no regard for their Asherah poles and the incense altars their fingers have made. In that day, false gods will no longer be gods. The book of Hebrews tells us 
that there are some people, even before Christ, who took God up on this offer of a throne of love. Even way back then, it says this, it says, they were living by faith when they died and they did not receive the things promised. They only saw and welcomed them from a distance. They're not quite sure what it is, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers, refugees on earth. People who say such things, that they're looking for something else, prove that they are looking for a country of their own. I don't belong where I was. I need something else. I need something my own. Because if they had wanted what they left, they just turn around and go back, right? But instead, they're looking for a better country, a heavenly one. And for those people, for them, God, for them, God's not ashamed. God is their God. God is their God. And he's got a country for them, a city waiting for you and for me. It's coming. You guys, I, again, I'm, I'm excited. Please get excited with me. This is amazing. What kind of God is this? Thank you. It's true. What an amazing God. What kind of faith must it have taken to only hope for that God and never see him or know him? And for us, what kind of privilege yep. to offer that king and that country to those who are looking But maybe this just isn't that exciting because, you know, maybe you came in here today and your life's just in ruins. If you're just being honest, it's, you're running helpless and hopeless right now, looking for refuge. Listen, I'm, I'm just telling you, listen to this refugee. I found him. I found the king. Amen, I found the country. Uh-huh. I got it. I could tell you where to go. Come with me. Lay down the false gods. Come with me. Come talk to me afterwards, please. This is not just about a sermon. This is about a life decision to worship the one true God. If, you, uh, if you're in that hopeless situation, because you had a bad king in your life, a bad leader, Maybe you were one of the innocent kids. Maybe you're the guilty king. Do you hear the offer? Do you hear the offer? Listen, if you turn back now to your false gods, I'm, it could get worse. It could get way worse. Please don't. He allows ruin to come. Not just so he can gloat from heaven over you. That's not what he's doing. What he's doing, he's trying to show you who he is. He's a God that saves. He's a God who has power. And while he executes that righteous judgment, shockingly, he also offers that escape from it. He's not like anybody who's ever loved you. He's not like anybody who ever can love you. By taking the judgment that you deserve, he, he became a refugee was subjected to all the terror and fear of a child and had a mother who was discarded and a father that was confused so that he could establish the throne of love for you. For you. And the throne of love is on the heart of every believer. And this is why 
justice and righteousness now flow through the heart of believers to people who are on the run and refugees. See, Christians don't suffer like the rest of the world. It's a different kind of suffering where when we enter into somebody else's suffering or we take on the suffering of going somewhere for the name of the Lord, it's not punishment. It actually is gonna result in reward. He's going to repay you if you believe and are helping the refugee. So what we have to offer in our journey with the refugee is the representation of the weeping, suffering, refugee king. He's on the throne of his people and he's on the throne in his church. They too now love like he did and they too enter into the plight of the refugee to make the offer of the throne of love in a country we're all longing for and the reality of his country and his kingdom is here in reality now in the church and his church carries the promise that Jesus is coming back and he's gonna wipe away every tear that's been caused from the horror and the heartache of those that believe in him. He's gonna bring to completion the country that he started in this place. There is no other answer for the refugee. Here, there, now, then, north, south, east, West, than the throne of love on which the refugee, King Jesus, sits. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast from Calvary Church. We hope this message has brought the light and hope of God's presence into your life, refreshing your soul for the journey the Lord has you on. If you have a spiritual need or would like to connect further with the work God is doing through Calvary Church, seek us out online at calvarygr.org. On our website, you can also find an archive of previous messages from this series. Thanks for listening.